why do we have creeds? How did we get the creeds? Joining me by phone today, the Reverend Dr. William Weinrich, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of Military Chaplaincy at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, also author of The History of the Creeds, the the Creeds in the Lutheran Witness September issue. Dr. Weinrich, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you so much to be with you. A pleasure to have time to talk with you today. A Mm -hmm. great article in the Lutheran Witness, the September 2017 issue on the creeds, and uh, just very insightful. I have uh, I've done some study of the creeds and what they they mean, but I learned even more from your one article than I did from an entire book. So I really appreciate the the article. Tell us. A little bit about your background and how a uh, study of the, the creeds has been a part of your work. Well, it's a good question. I, uh, I've always been interested in history, and when I went to the University of Basel in Switzerland for my doctor's degree, I was actually looking at early Christian texts concerning martyrdom, but I ran across, uh, quite accidentally, uh, a very nice two-volume work by a man by the name of Cottonbush, which was a thorough investigation of the Apostolic Creed, or what we call the Apostles' Creed. So I, I read through it, and uh, it led me to other literature, and really uh, my patristic interest, as to say the early church, kind of sometimes circles around these creeds, especially the Nicene Creed with the whole controversy of uh, the deity of Jesus, obviously the Athanasian Creed with its interest as well in the unity of person and the distinction of Jesus' two natures. So issues that are not necessarily directly related to these particular formulas, but certainly have to do with their content, has been frankly a constant of my professional life. Why? As you studied, why do we have creeds? What did you learn as you you looked at the history of creeds and confessions? Why do we have creeds? What role have they played in the the life of the Church throughout history? Well, by no means are these three what we call ecumenical creeds the only creeds. They were many different variations to the baptismal creed, but there is creedal material within the New Testament. There is creedal material within the Old Testament. Uh, For example, in Deuteronomy 6, you have the famous Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so creeds took on a form that are declaratory of one's personal and corporate belief as Israel or as the Church, but they also serve as a marker, a kind of an identification marker, which distinguishes you from other understandings of God and His work. And so, in in a way, creeds simply mean as a summary of truth such as that is revealed by God in the Old and the New Testament. And I might just uh, tell your readers that in a way, the word creed is a little bit of a, shall we say, it, it comes in later, as it were. 
the official uh, term was a symbol, a symbolum, which meant kind of a public marker, which denoted your uh, to whom you belonged. It denoted uh, your your identity, and so creeds were markers of Christian identity, which are the summaries of that truth, that narrative, into which Christians are brought by way of their baptism. So they kind of are placed into that narrative sequence, which is the creed itself. So what creeds then do we confess today, use the word ecumenical, in the the name of your article, the Ecumenical Creeds, a brief history. What creeds do we confess today as Lutherans? Well, uh, again, the the word ecumenical actually is slightly later. I mean, you can't say everything (laughs) in a small article, can you? The, The real term, at least in terms of the Latin, was three Catholic symbols. And Catholic here, of course, did mean like ecumenical. It meant universal. It, it meant the, those formulas of faith which should be confessed, at least the content of which should be confessed, by the Church at all times and all places. And so the creed is a summary of the unity of the, of the Church's faith, and in that sense also Catholic as well as ecumenical. Uh, interestingly, in, our, in the Lutheran Book of Concord, in the German title, it uses the phrase, the three chief symbols. Uh, perhaps already looking forward to the Augustana and the uh, catechisms of Luther. But to answer your question, there are three, and one is called the uh, Apostolic Creed. Now, I'm kind of giving you the, the correct nomenclature here, uh, because what when we say the Apostles' Creed, it's actually reflecting an early, I suppose we should say, legend that the Twelve Apostles each contributed a particular phraseology to the creed, and when it, they were all added together, it was the Creed of the Apostles. The strict name of the Apostles' Creed is the Apostolicum, that is to say, that summary of faith which is apostolic. And so it claims to be true to the apostolic preaching of the New Testament. That creed uh, is perhaps the best-known creed, at least in the West. It, it has worked itself into our, our various liturgies. It is a commonplace in terms of daily prayer. It became a commonplace in terms of the daily offices of the Church. But if we think in terms of the ecumenicity of these creeds, these various creeds, then the most important is the Nicene Creed, as we call it. And that creed is universal in the true sense of the term. All churches, Western and Eastern, 
confess this creed. It's the only one of the three that is confessed also in the Eastern tradition. Not that they disagree with the content of the others, it's just that the historical use of these creeds uh, did not bring the Apostolic Creed or the so-called Athanasian Creed into the West, into the Eastern use. I believe uh, I had a conversation once with uh, I believe it was a Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a lay person, I, and uh, I, I spoke about the, you know, confessing the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And I believe he referred to, and he wasn't speaking officially on behalf of the church, but I believe he referred to the Apostles' Creed as the the lazy version. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, well, it, that's unfair. I mean, in a way, I suppose one can. It, it's certainly shorter, isn't it? And in some respects, it has less theological kind of weight to it. I mm-hmm. mean, it doesn't have things like begotten of his Father before all worlds, light from light, true God, and so forth, begotten, not made, and all that. The Nicene Creed is kind of theologically weightier in that respect. In, in some respects, the Athanasian Creed will be even more so. Um, but But the Apostolic Creed was a was an easy summary that very quickly, maybe from the very, very beginning in terms of its, its origins, was associated with Christian baptism. And it would then be that form of the creed, certainly in the West, again, primarily in the West at this point, although you have historical antecedents of that in the East, to be sure, too. These were baptismal creeds, which a person was expected to recite by memory before the assembled church uh, upon being baptized. And so it, it then lent itself to daily devotion. It lent itself to prayer. It lent itself to shorter liturgical services, such as the offers, uh, the daily offices. It clearly lent itself to catechetical instruction, especially to the children. Uh, the Nicene Creed would just take more teaching. It's a, it's a more difficult theological formula, to be sure. So, okay, uh, it's, it's kind of lazy, but it, it isn't bad for that reason. <laughs> And I think I, I think the point you made was also the point that, that that he was making as well. It's not as weighty as as the Nicene Creed, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you piqued my interest, though. This practice of uh, the reciting a creed at one's baptism, you know, reciting this before the the, the congregation. Uh, so this was basically the creed was then um, this these baptismal creeds were a a, a summary. I guess, in essence, of the instruction that they had received prior to their baptism? Yes, I think that that's, that's right. And unlike today, where we have kind of very open church services, so anybody can come into our church services and they can say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed along with us. That is very, very different than the early centuries, where no one who was not baptized, uh, had ever heard this creed, uh, these symbols. Uh, And you would first receive them in what was called the traditio, the tradition, the handing over of the symbol, 
that would happen quite soon before you were actually baptized. And the formal instruction of the creed, depending upon place, could be before baptism, but in some places, like ancient Milan, for example, the actual instruction of the creed was after baptism. So in that case, a bishop like Ambrose would ask those who had just been baptized, this would be instruction during the week subsequent to their baptism, he would ask them, what was it that you experienced there? What was it, what did it mean that you said this? And so they would then give back the creed and be taught the meaning of these various, uh, these various phrases of the creed. So even in practice, the creed was very tightly associated with the baptismal event. This is especially true of the Apostles' Creed. The Athanasian Creed was never so used, uh, but later the Nicene Creed could be so used. But, uh, but again, the Apostolic Creed, certainly in the West, uh, took precedent in that particular context. The and I'd like to move on to uh, a little more into the Nicene Creed, but just out of personal interest in some of my reading, uh, one that's uh, that has always caught my interest in the past was the Interrogatory Creed of Hippolytus. Are you familiar with that one? Yep. yep. It's uh, it's so I I don't know. It it seems very liturgical in a sense because or catechetical. Do you believe in God the Father? All governing is just asking a question, and then you respond. It seems very catechetical to me in nature. Well, in, indeed, and we don't know quite. Uh, this seems to be kind of a third-century text that you're referring to. The apostolic traditions attributed to Hippolytus. Uh, certainly, those interrogatory statements were asked. It would appear at the moment of baptism. Mm-hmm. And so it might well then suggest, it suggests to me at least, that some instruction had preceded this. So it's as though, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, such as we have taught you so to believe in him? And, and then you are to give the affirmative action at which point, uh, the answer, at which point you would have been immersed into the baptismal font. And as you you know, that interrogatory would be repeated three times in what we call the first, second, and third articles of the Creed. So a three-form immersion upon affirming the content of uh, what certainly would become the Apostles' Creed. Absolutely fascinating text, to be sure. Indeed, indeed. Tell us more about the Nicene Creed and the, the, the history of the Nicene Creed. How, uh, how did we get the Nicene Creed? Well, there were kind of two functions for what we might call creeds. One was liturgical, which we've kind of been emphasizing, that which would be recited within the Church's liturgical and sacramental uh, commitments and contexts. But 
formularies very, very similar to these could also be used in order to separate Christian truth off from distinct heretical errors. And so if you would take a look at some of the kind of creedal material in a person like Irenaeus or Tertullian, you would see what was called a rule of faith. That is to say, a summary of the fundamental articles of Christian belief, which oftentimes emphasize certain heretical errors. And so the the Apostles' Creed, such as we have it, is kind of a a non-polemical summary. It doesn't focus clearly upon certain errors. It's kind of a, a natural summary of everything we believe. But a rule of faith oftentimes would contain language, expansions, if you will, within the, the, the natural text that is explicitly are intended to exclude certain errors. And that was the function originally of what we call the Nicene Creed. It was a rule of faith which was promulgated by the bishops at the first ecumenical council. Then the third article added at the second ecumenical council of Constantinople in 380, 81 and 82, in that general area of time. And the focus of this rule of faith, the Nicene Creed, if you will, was a heresy which was called Arianism, after an Alexandrian Egyptian presbyter by the name of Arius. And Arius, in order to protect the transcendent unity of God and his immutability, that is to say his changelessness, wanted to in every way, as it were, keep God apart from the world. And uh, and so he denied then that the man Jesus could be said to be true God. So the Son or the Word of God who became flesh was not in fact true God. He was not equal to the Father according to the divine reality, the divine essence. And so the fathers at Nicaea gathered Traditionally, there were 318 of them. They gathered together, and they, and they promulgated this formula which explicitly wishes to exclude the Aryan subordinationism. And that's why then you get such language as begotten, not made. The Son was not a creature. He was not made. He was not a creature but he was eternally begotten out of the Father's own being, and hence homoousius, of the very same divine substance as is the Father. Uh, Light from light, true God from true God. These were all phrases intended to express the equality of the Son with the Father according to divinity, at the same time keeping them distinct. So 
I suppose one could say, as a, as a general comment, that the Nicene Creed produces, kind of for the first time, an ecumenical acclamation of the doctrine of the Trinity, such as the Church then would universally assert uh, throughout it, it all times and all places. So an incredibly important creed in the history of the doctrine of God as triune. What about the, uh, we have just a, about five minutes left. I want to dig into the Athanasian Creed here in just a moment, but one more item about the, the Nicene Creed. What, how is this, um, it, it, how is the Nicene Creed received uh, uh, across Christian denominations? Are there differences regarding the Nicene Creed across Christian denominations? Well, I think the general answer to that would be no. I mean, the official text of the Creed can be found in the the canons of the Fourth Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon, and that is the official text. And I don't know of any churches, frankly, not even perhaps those of the Radical Reformation, who would deny the content, at least formally, would deny the content of that creed. As you know, certain denominations, such as, let us say, the Free Will Baptist or somebody like that, they may agree with content, but they don't agree with corporately reciting creeds. But as I said earlier on, the Nicene Creed is the single creed which is in fact universally used and recited. Now there is a big, there is one caveat here. Uh, In the later history of the creed, the question arose whether or not the Holy Spirit eternally proceeded from the Father only, or whether the Spirit eternally proceeded from the Father and the Son. That so-called filioque clause was added to the Western recitation of the creed in the 6th century, and became kind of universally, as far as the West is concerned, universally accepted and formalized in the year 1014, when it became the, the, the official form of the creed, such as it was recited at St. Peter's in Rome. Uh, that form of the creed, with the filioque, is not recited in the Eastern tradition they recite the Nicene Creed without the filioque. But take away that significant difference, to be sure, the filioque, I mean, the Nicene Creed is a common creed, at least formally recognized by all major denominations. Just uh, about two minutes to look at the Athanasian Creed. I'm sorry, that's hardly adequate to uh, to address the Athanasian Creed. Uh, a, a bit of the history of the Athanasian Creed, how we got it, and what are some of the the heresies that it addresses? Well, the Athanasian Creed is a distinctly Western creed. It's it's a Latin creed, and it seemed to have arisen in the southern part of what today would be France perhaps as a teaching tool uh, or as a kind of a, a, a good and holy summary to guide preachers as they preach the gospel to their people and to keep them free of two major 
heretical possibilities. One would be the Arianism that we've already talked about. The other would be the heresy of a man by the name of Nestorius, who was whose thinking did not adequately take account of the unity of Christ's person. And so the Athanasian Creed is a formulary of, of oh, I've forgotten, 42 clauses, I think it was, which are express the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, that God is also three equal persons, it expresses also a doctrine of Christ, that Christ is one person, but that person shares both in the fullness of divinity as well as in the fullness of humanity. And so the Athanasian Creed seems at first to have been, as I say, a kind of a summary of Christian faith over against those two heresies to guide Christian preachers in the early Middle Ages. Uh, later, of course, as we know in our own church, it too became recited within the Christian liturgy, especially on Trinity Sunday. Very interesting. It, it, Trinity Sunday, or as some call it, Long Creed Sunday. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, it, it, I'm sure if the Apostolic Creed is lazy, the Athanasian Creed is long. There's no doubt about that. My guest today, the Reverend Dr. William Weinrich, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of Military Chaplaincy at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, also author of the article, The Ecumenical Creeds, A, a Brief History in Lutheran Witness, September 2017 issue. Dr. Weinrich, thank you so much for being my guest today and for the insights, the uh, the history you provided for us on the creeds. Well, thank you for having me, and I think it was fun talking about it. Um, oh, absolutely. A lot of fun. I could talk for another hour or two. God's blessings on your service at Concordia Theological Seminary. Hey, thank you so much. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word, right here on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO. listening to Faith and Family, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO.